Our reading today comes from John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Eternal God, we thank you for your word. And we pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears, that we might hear your truth and hear the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And would you renew our hearts to the hope that we have with him, empowering us to live in light of his truth. We ask in the name of the one true God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, who became man in Jesus Christ and brought us peace. In his name we pray, amen. Good morning, my name is Jonathan Keel and it is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Uh, For those of you who've been with us for the last six months, this morning marks a bit of a change in our sermon series. Uh, through parts of Advent and for about the four months previous, we have been going through the book of Exodus. 
And there we've been tracing God's covenant, and particularly his covenant in the giving of his tabernacle. And this morning, we shift, and we shift back to a New Testament reading. We pick up where we left off uh, earlier in 2019 in the Gospel of John. And from now until Easter, we will be slowly making our way through John's Gospel. And since it's been several months since we've been there, uh, I thought it might help to make a few comments about the particulars of this book, and specifically its purpose and its style. Because the book of John is unique in a couple of ways. Right? It's one of four Gospels, but the other three are Gospels that we call the synoptic Gospels. And that word just means they share one view. And John's Gospel is not a part of that synoptic group. And it's because John uh, uses unique style and unique wording, but he also uses unique stories and unique structures, stories that you don't find in the other Gospels. And so John's, John's wording is unique, his poetic wording, his figurative language is unique, and even some of his content is unique, and we only find it in his gospel. And this morning is an example of one such passage. And so it's helpful to ask, why would God include this? Why would John include this story when, when three other accounts of Jesus' life leave it out? And I think the most general answer to that question is, why is it here, is found in John's overall purpose, the purpose of his book. And John wrote his book that we might believe. And it's a, it's a very commonly known theme. We know uh, that's why John wrote this book, because he's really clear about it. And maybe he's most clear in chapter 20 when he tells us in verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A small confession here. In preparing for the sermon, I knew that was the purpose of his book. I knew, I even, I even knew that verse was it, but I wanted to maybe be impressive or, or be, um, you know, ingratiate myself and, and quote it perfectly. So I had to go look it up, and I'd forgotten the verse reference. And so I go to my, my Bible software, and, and, you know, what verse is this that, that we look at? And I, I search on the phrase, to believe. And I knew, again, that this was important. I knew it was the theme of the book, but I was overwhelmed how many times this phrase occurs in John's Gospel, and the verb to believe occurs. And to give you an idea, uh, I did a little comparison to compare John's Gospel to the others. And the Gospel of Matthew uses this verb to believe 11 times. The Gospel of Mark, one of the shorter ones, uses this verb 16 times. And the Gospel of Luke uses this verb nine times. You want to care to guess how many times John uses this verb to believe? I'm looking at the Greek scholar in the room, and he might know. 98 times John uses this verb. It is more than seven times greater, more frequent than any other gospel. John has written this book so that you and I would read it and so that we would believe. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and maybe... You don't believe in Jesus. And if you are, if you're in that spot, the first thing that I would tell you, say to you is that this is a safe place. It is a safe place to wrestle through questions of belief. And we know that coming to faith and, and exploring who Jesus is and what he's done is often a very long process. So you are welcome here, and, and we are glad you are here. But the other thing that I would say to you is, uh, because if you think, well, you know, if I don't believe, and that's why John's 
John wrote his gospel, you know, what, what message can this have for me? What message can this book have for me? I would have a second message for you, and, and that is the answer to how can John's gospel speak to me if I don't believe is actually one of the reasons why I personally do believe in Christ. Because John's gospel is not just written so that we would believe. It's not just written to, to produce an intellectual assent that Jesus is who he says he is. John's gospel is written in a way that actually provides truth about our world and our reality. And when my faith is shaken and when I start questioning things, I can look to John's gospel and I can look to scripture and I can see scripture describes my life. The stories that scripture describes, the words of Jesus describes how I experience life. And by seeing those truths, I am then encouraged to believe. And so this, this gospel provides a clear picture of both of these things. It provides a clear picture of why we should believe in Christ, but it also provides a clear picture of the reality around us. So specifically, how does this gospel and this chapter, chapter 7, do that? And I think this chapter is about what we saw in verse 24. This chapter is about right judgment. Jesus tells the crowd, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And looking back on the 24, Four previous verses, 23 previous verses, we see that this theme, this theme of right judgment, is communicated through three different interactions. And in verses 1 through 9, Jesus has an interaction with his family, with his brothers. And then in Jesus 10 through 13, we see a different interaction among a mixed crowd at the feast that he goes to. And then in verses 14 through 24, we see Jesus interacting with the group that John calls the Jews. And that's the, the Jewish authorities of his day. And looking at these three groups, we find three lessons about right judgment. And specifically, in verses 1 through 9, we see right judgment or judgment in adversity. And then in verses 10 through 13, we see judgment in conflict. And then 14 through 24, we see judgment in the kingdom. So judgment in adversity, in conflict, and in the kingdom. So first, let's look at judgment in adversity in verses 1 through 9. In this scene... We see Jesus essentially arguing with his brothers. If any of you have brothers in the room, you can probably understand this scene. I have a brother, and I can relate well to this scene. And Jesus is back home, and he's actually back home after a pretty difficult confrontation in chapter 6. It's been a while since we've been there, uh, but you can see it here in our chapter. And that the teaching that he gave in chapter 6 was so hard that several of his disciples left him, and the Jewish authorities were even seeking to kill him. And so he goes home, he goes to Galilee. And while he's at home, his brothers try to convince him to go back to Judea. Now there's a Jewish feast going on, the Feast of Booths. This was a, a week-long feast that commemorated the wilderness uh, journeys of Israel and God's special provision for Israel in the wilderness. And uh, that feast is going on, and his brothers want him to take his ministry, to make his ministry more public. Telling him in verse 4, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. But notice that their motives, they're not pure motives. Verse 5 suggests that they were most likely antagonizing him. Because John tells us his brothers didn't believe in him. Didn't believe he was who he says he was. So it seems as if they're taunting Jesus. And here's where we find our first lesson of right judgment. 
Because Jesus' brothers seem to be seeking his harm. They're, they're uh, placing him in adversity. If they didn't believe in him, why would they want him to go public only to see him fail? Or at the very least, they're not concerned about his well-being since the very reason he's in Galilee is because they were seeking to kill him. And they say, go back to Judea. Go back to where those people want to kill you. And I think when we look at this, we see Jesus' response to this adversity and we get an insight into what right judgment is. Because Jesus, he doesn't rebuke his brothers. He doesn't show them where they're wrong. He doesn't, he doesn't try to press his rights against his brothers. And he doesn't try to outshame them, turning the tables on them. Rather, in calm certainty, Jesus rests in his Father's plan, saying in verse 6, my time has not yet come. And resting in his Father's plan, he acknowledges that his path is one of persecution in adversity. And he says this in, in verse 7, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I think here we see the difference between the world's judgment and right judgment. Appearances would tell you that Jesus should want to be popular. That doing the things he did, he should bring comfort and recognition and fame. But right judgment knows that these worldly promises are short-lived and they're short-sighted. And more than that, Jesus knows that the false promises of the world are, in a sense, evil because the world's works are evil. So what do we learn for ourselves from this? And at least a few things. I think first, uh, we see that just as this wasn't a surprise to Jesus, our own adversity, our own persecution should not be a surprise to any who follow him. The world hates Jesus because its works are evil. And if you follow Jesus, the world is going to hate you as well. Right? Jesus' ministry, the calling for Jesus is a calling to pick up our cross and follow him. But it's not just for Christians. In fact, the world will hate you either way. Whether you're a Christian or an atheist, at some point you will face adversity in your life because that's simply how the world works, because its works are evil. Evil is there crouching at your door and it's waiting to destroy you. And yet, somehow, amazingly, this can bring comfort. Because knowing that the adversity we face is not always from us can bring peace that the adversity and the persecution that we face is not about our worth. I think it's so clear here. Think about it. Even outside of Christianity, think of who Jesus is. Outside of our faith, everybody looks at Jesus and says, yeah, that was a good guy, Right? He's either a good teacher, or in some religions, he's a prophet, or he's a nice man. Somewhere along lines, people are saying he is good. And if Jesus, the good person, faced this type of adversity, it wasn't about his worth. It wasn't about his worth before God or before man. And so hear me when I tell you that if you are facing adversity in your life, it is not tied to your worth before the Lord. It may be a result of actions. I have faced adversity because of actions that I made, but it is not a comment on your worth, and I pray that's a comfort for you. But there's another kind of comfort here too, and I think it's when you see his reaction, right? Because my own reaction to this type of adversity would be, 
uh, I don't know, one of several things, I'd probably complain. Corey would probably hear about it, uh, right, if my brother was persecuting me. Uh, I'd probably want to fight back. I'd probably want to lash out. But Jesus' reaction is to patiently wait on the Father's plan. He knew his time had not yet come. And this type of confidence in God's timing can bring comfort in adversity. Because we can remember that sometimes it's not our job to fix things. Jesus didn't go to make the message clear. He didn't go to his brothers and tell them where they were wrong. He waited in his father's plan. And I pray that when we see that, when we see his example, it would bring you comfort in any adversity that you might find yourself in, that you can wait in the Lord's plan. And I say that it would be comfort when you find yourself in adversity because we all will find ourselves in adversity. Again, no matter what background you have, it will find you. And I think that's because our world is always in conflict, right? Our world is in conflict. And that brings us to our second point, is that the need for right judgment in conflict. Because in verses 10 through 13, we get a picture of competing and conflicting viewpoints. Do you notice the mixed reaction? The crowd that was at this feast, and they were grumbling or muttering, and they they say, there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, others say, no, he is leading the people astray. So before Jesus even makes an appearance, he is facing two opposing groups. John doesn't dwell on it in the story here, uh, but I think it, it teaches us about how we are to respond in conflict. And now, just a quick aside, before we talk about our conflict uh, I'll, I'll spend just two minutes on what some have called a problem in this text. And you probably noticed it in the reading of the text. When uh, we, we get to the point where Jesus says in verse 8, I'm not going up to the feast. And then later in verse 10, he ends up going up to the feast. And this has given some people some concern. Uh, particularly in the last hundred years, this has given people concern. Modern interpreters have troubled this, asking themselves, hey, maybe Jesus was lying. You know, maybe that's what he was doing here. And again, without spending too much time on it, I think the concern uh, is not with what Jesus says, but it's just our misunderstanding of how ancient language works, how ancient text works. And there are several different ways to understand what Jesus is saying. For example, notice in verse 10, John tells us Jesus went up privately while his brothers went up publicly. So it could be that Jesus said, I'm not going up at this time. He's just saying, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go up with you. I'm not going to go up publicly. I'm going to wait and go up privately. Or another way to understand this is uh, look at the timing of it all. In verse 8, he says, I'm not going up to this feast. As I mentioned, this feast, the Feast of Booths, was a week-long celebration. So maybe he was talking about, well, I'm not going to go up to that part of the feast. I'm going to wait and go up later. Uh, But I think it's most likely that it was a more general statement that Jesus was just telling his brothers, I'm not going up yet. Notice he mentions in verse 6 that his time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. It makes sense of why he would show up later. And the interpretation also explains why the earliest, the, actually the earliest copies we have of the book of John, the earliest text we have, have the words not yet, I'm not going up yet in them. Um, and also probably most convincing for me, this type of interpretation, understanding that he's not going up yet, makes sense of a wordplay that's going on here. Because again, John uses poetic and figurative words all over his gospel. And that that verb, to go up, is a verb that he uses several times in his gospel. And it 
often means ascending, as in when Jesus talks about you will see the Son of Man ascending to his Father. And then at the end of the gospel, when he sees Mary and the resurrected Jesus is talking with Mary, and he says, don't touch me yet because I've not yet ascended. I've not yet gone up. So I think what Jesus is saying, he's, he's using a word play here to tell his brothers, I'm not going up in the way that you think I am, but it's because my time has not yet come and I'm not yet ascending to my Father. And so again, the trouble with this passage is not that Jesus is lying. The trouble with this passage is that we tend, in our modern ears, to hear only the non-spiritual meaning, and we miss the spiritual reality. But back to the conflict in verses 10 through 13. Jesus, even before he makes an appearance at the feast, we see two opposite factions or sides telling two opposite narratives about him. You have essentially two groups forming around what you might call alternate truths. If there's anything that is relatable to our cultural American moment in this story, it is this, right? That we hear conflicting, quote-unquote, truths in our lives. I'm going to borrow the words of one pastor to help bring this point to us, to remind us of some of these crazy, contradictory truths that are going on right now in America. So in the words of one pastor, at the same time in America, we have the rise of gay rights, and also the rise of the ultra-right. We have the loss of religious liberties for bakers and pizza shop owners, and at the same time, an election to the Supreme Court of a pro-religious liberty Supreme Court justice. We have a decline in general church membership, while at the same time, a rise in celebrity church megapastors. You see stories like a pastor is told to step down because he's in his early 20s and he makes a move on a 16-year-old girl, which is heartbreaking and tragic. And yet at the same time in Hollywood, Call Me By My Name is a film celebrating a relationship between an underage teenage boy and a man in his 20s. We have the Me Too movement rushing through our world at the exact same time. We have a moment that 50 shades of gray picturing the abuse, domination of women is the fastest and largest selling book among women. We have the rise of hate speech and the defending of free speech. We have the normalization of technology and a desire to get rid of it at the exact same time. Do you feel these conflicting tensions in our life, these opposite narratives telling us opposite quote-unquote truths? If there's ever been a time and a need for right judgment, I feel like that time is ours. And so how does this passage help us better understand Judgment in the midst of conflict. If we live in a time of conflict, how does this passage help? I think one of the answers to that question is found in verse 13. Notice in the midst of this conflict, no one spoke openly about Jesus. And it's because of fear of the Jews. And again, talking about the Jews, John is referring to the religious authorities. Obviously, everybody at this festival, it was a Jewish festival, everyone there would have been Jewish. So when he's talking about the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leaders. But no one there is speaking out of fear. Fear is driving the conflict. And I think the same thing could be said of our time. When you hear political groups argue with each other, how often is that argument driven by fear? How about in your own life, my own life? How many arguments have we gotten in for fear of of just being wrong? Or what about fear of being rejected? Fear of being shamed? Fear of being isolated or abandoned. I think fear 
drives so much of our conflict. And it's the opposite of right judgment. Because what does the Bible teach us about fear? Well, one of the clearest examples is from Psalm 27. And the entire psalm is about living in the confidence in the Lord and not being afraid. Psalm 27, it opens in this way. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That message is reiterated throughout the Bible. Do not fear is one of the most common commands in the Bible. And so fear is driving this conflict. But a right understanding and a right judgment understands that we can be released from that fear and we can be released from entering in the fray. Because right judgment gives us a path forward. It gives us a path forward in conflict and it doesn't mean that we won't face conflict and it certainly doesn't mean that we won't have to get an, give an account for the things that we believe, but it does give us a way forward. Specifically, when we find ourselves in the middle of conflicting narratives, we can look at the example of our Lord and search for peace. Because remember, Jesus didn't jump into the fray. He didn't try to set everyone straight. He didn't go up publicly. He went up privately. Rather than going into the argument, he went into the temple and taught. As he mentions in verse 18, he didn't even go up seeking his own glory. He went up seeking the glory of the one who sent him. And this, for many of us this morning, this type of patience and confident uh, waiting in the Lord is difficult. Now, I'm sure there is an Enneagram number for this, but I don't know which one it is. But for some of us in the room, uh, it can be hard to hear an argument and not want to tell people where they're wrong, right? And so we, we may uh, go into a, you know, an idea where we hear conflicting viewpoints and we think we know which one's right and we want to speak to this. Uh, this is a lesson I learned very acutely in my first year of marriage. And uh, I remember a, a specific time where Corey and I, we went home to visit my family. And I, I don't know if it was the first time uh, that we were there for an extended period of time, but we were married. And my brother and my dad and I would have these arguments. We would get really heated. And my poor, sweet, and gentle, and kind wife would sit right next to me the whole time feeling super uncomfortable and listening to us just going after each other, going after one another. Well... Uh, that was the same year that I also learned that I can't talk to my wife the same way that I can talk to my dad. And so occasionally I would talk to her and she would, she would make the comment, hey, I feel like uh, the, the same Jonathan that was talking to your brother and dad is talking to me right now. And it took me a long time to learn that I needed humility and patience in my interactions, even with my own wife. I needed humility and patience and I didn't need to go after her showing her where she was wrong because... I always thought she was the one that was wrong. But I needed to go with humility that maybe it was me. Maybe I was the one who was wrong. And even if I'm right, our Lord's example is that it's okay to not press that right on her. Because my relationship was more important than pointing out where she was wrong. And I think, ironically, this tendency to prove ourselves right can go into overdrive sometimes when it's applied to Christian ideals and our faith. And so ironically, we jump in the middle of things to set someone right who's wrong about issues of spirituality or morality or faith. But again, 
That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't go up to the feast publicly to make a scene. Instead, he goes up secretly, eventually making his way to the temple. And while he doesn't back down from conflict, and he certainly says some things that outrage a few people, in the midst of that, notice his gentleness and his humility. He does not force his teaching on his audience. And he even deflects their amazement. Right In verse 15, when the, when the audience marvels at him and can't understand where he learns these things, rather than reveal uh, or revel, rather than revel in being right or take credit for his teaching, he deflects the glory to the Father and the one who sent him. Oh, that we would be more like Christ in that, that we would experience the humility and gentleness in the midst of conflict. But Jesus isn't just our example of peace. He is also our source of peace. And we can have confidence to rest in him because he is, as Psalm 27 says, our light and our salvation. And he is our stronghold. In him we need not fear because he has defeated all our enemies, even death. When we go to him, we can find that truth amidst conflict And in that truth, we can find comfort. And I think this message is important because, as we've mentioned, we'll always have conflict in our life. And we see now how Jesus' example can help guide us through that conflict, how his right judgment and his example can provide peace and adversity. It can bring comfort and conflict. But it's not only Jesus' example that is helpful for us, but the passage also teaches us the content of right judgment. Because right judgment is kingdom judgment. You see, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what right judgment looks like in verses 14 through 24. Not only is his example one of humility and confidence, right? He doesn't jump up in the middle of an argument and spark conflict. But Jesus, in him, we see what kingdom judgment looks like. Right judgment, specifically, is about recognizing the coming of the kingdom. In verses 19 through 24, we see this. Jesus shows how the Jews missed, in a sense, his miraculous healing. They were so focused on worldly issues and which side he was on. Was he on their side or was he on somebody else's side? That they missed that Jesus healed a man. Specifically, they're mad that he healed a man on the Sabbath, saying that he broke a regulation. But Jesus shows them that right judgment has come to heal the broken. They think Jesus has broken a law, and they miss that healing. And just as important, they miss the implications of that healing. Because remember, John tells us again and again, this book is about believing. And he tells us that the signs that Jesus does, these miracles that he does, are done in order that we might believe. So healing on the Sabbath wasn't a rules violation It was the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. It was the fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah we began our our, uh, worship with. Right judgment recognizes the kingdom come in Jesus Christ, and it looks to him to understand who he is and what he's done. Once you understand who Jesus is, you can't help but submit to him. You submit your life to him because he is the king of the kingdom. He is the only one who can bring comfort to the adversity of your life. He's the only one who can give you peace in your conflict. And 
he is the only one who has come to heal the things in you that are broken. And in doing so, he brings the kingdom of God. Believe in that Jesus and trust in him. This is the message that the Jews missed. This is the message that you and I need. Right judgment opens our eyes to the coming of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. That kingdom began when he came. And he went through the trials. He went through the adversity. And he's the only one to have done it wholly and perfectly good. And he endured the conflict. And he settled it. He settled the conflict. And he will come again. And when he does... He will put an end to all the adversity in your life. And he will put an end to all the conflict in your life. Believe in him, and anyone who does will find life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God who became man. And in doing so, you have taught us about our world the realities around us, but you have also opened our eyes to your kingdom come. Would we find comfort in our adversity in you? Would you bring us peace in our conflict? Would you open our eyes to your kingdom? Give us right judgment that we may see you, know you, believe in you, and have life in your name. We ask for your sake. Amen.